to the National Rural Education Podcast, The Rural Voice, with uh, Dr. Chris Silver, Dr. Jared Bigham, our my co-host and producer slash co-host, and then our special guest today. This would be his third visit with us is Dr. Brad Mitchell coming to us out of Columbus, Ohio today, and we're going to have a little bit different episode today. We're going to highlight and talk through a article, actually a case study that came out in the New York Times, education issue, the tragedy of America's rural schools. Now, as you're listening to this, in the description, Dr. Silver is going to put a link to this story and some highlights and some different things in the, in the description. So we're going to to, to make use of our time, we're going to go directly into this with Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Riggum, and Dr. Silver and myself. So, guys, what's your general take, thoughts on this case study? And, and I'll throw it to Brad first, and we'll go from there. Well, thanks for having me back. Um, there is a new book out called Pastoral Song, which is written by a farmer, a third-generation farmer. And he talked about once when his dad, who was the second-generation farmer, was getting uh, lectured to by the local uh, uh, extension agent. Uh, the quote was, my dad despised being preached at by people who clearly had more comfortable lives than he did. Um, and so I think my first response is, you know, New York Times tragedy of America's rural schools, uh, while an incredibly poignant, emotionally rich uh, story, is just one narrative about what it is like to live in rural America and, and learn in rural America. Uh, and so my initial response is um, to look at it from both sides of the coin in terms of what did this uh, article, in my opinion, get right? And what in this article do I think perhaps is a comfortable person being able to look back and make moral judgments on places perhaps they've never been. Good, good point. Dr. Begum, love to hear your take on it. Yeah, I, I agree with Brad. I mean, I loved his, um, the anecdote he opened up with about his dad. I think that, um, uh, first of all, I don't doubt anything that was in the article. Uh, my heart breaks for the situation that that school district's in, those students and families are in. And I don't think it's unique to that one particular school district in Mississippi either, but also don't think this is a narrative that is just shared by rural districts. I mean, my gosh, Jonathan Kozal has made a living off of writing about urban schools in very similar situations where the sewers are backing up in the schools and the infrastructure is falling apart and hard for kids to learn when the building's falling around their ears. So. You know, I, I, I don't doubt the narrative, and again, my heart breaks about the narrative in that situation, but um, I think sometimes that, that, that ultimately when you have stories like this without talking about the other things that are that good things that might be going on in that community um, or in surrounding communities and, and some of the, the stories of students that have been successful, they've come out of that district. I think you get a, a really negative view, not only of that district, but also of, of rural districts in general. I mean, especially when the, the title of your article is The Tragedy of America's Rural Schools. I mean, my Lord. Um, I, and I, what's ironic about this, I literally just finished a series of blogs for Bellwether that's highlighting the good things going on in rural schools across the country. So, I definitely agree with Brad that there's two sides to every coin. 
Dr. Silver, what's your take on this lovely piece? <laughs> um, well, let me remind the listeners, my area, when it, I'm in two areas of research. One's, of course, in studying the cognitive aspects of people's religious beliefs. But the other area, and this is actually what I've been doing my current, um, I just wrap, I'm wrapping up a doctoral doctoral program right now in social psych, studying issues of diversity, bias, prejudice, discrimination, and particularly my dissertations on stigma. Um, and I, the big concern that I have with these kinds of pieces, and I appreciate Brad sort of leading with the fact that, you know, the emotion's very real. Um, and I think that's important. Um, and, but the other piece of it is, is that regions are very different. The challenges in every region are very different. And the urban rural distinction in some cases can be helpful in some contexts, and it's also not helpful in others. So I think that when we are talking about these kinds of ch local challenges that exist, I think it has to take into the context of those challenges because um, every rural system has different challenges. Every state has different challenges. And, you know, rural isn't necessarily bad. In fact, I can't speak for Brad, but I at least know that Alan, Jared and I all three come from rural school districts and we all have our doctorates and we're all successful, you know, and in some ways, when you read this article, it sort of makes it out like success isn't possible. Um, and I'll tell you right now, working on a farm trained me better to be a graduate student than anything else ever has, because hard work pays off. And, you know, so I'd say that a student might not potentially get that same opportunity in, a, in a, an urban center, but I, I think We've got to be, and, and also let me say this, uh, Alan, one of the things I appreciate you leading with is this is sort of a case study of one specific person in one specific context at one specific point in time. We got to be real, real careful about making inferences about larger systematic problems from a single case study. Um, now, it's not to say that the case study doesn't have its own form of validity and it doesn't have its own form of, of context and use, but um, there are so many more narratives out there um, that that wild, range wildly, and a lot of them have the same challenges that are noted in this article, but they're also in different, how can I say this, is like in different forms. So, you know, we can't apply all this to a single case, and I appreciate you saying that, Alan, because I do. I see this almost as a case study. Yeah, yeah, and in you know, for me, when it came out, it was it was kind of funny. Um, I was doing a webinar with a group, and then this came out pretty much as the webinar was breaking. So I was getting text messages and and hits on Twitter. I guess they would say I don't know, but anyway, it 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 kind of I'm gonna be honest with you, it kind of really made me mad when I first got the messages about it, because most of the messages were free from people that were not in rural areas. And it was almost like, look at this. What are you going to do now? You see this. What are you going to do about it? And I want to say, hey, you read about it. It pissed you off. Excuse my slang. What are you going to do about it? You know, yeah. you're writing this together. And, and what? So, and, and that's why I want to take this. And I want to go to Brad with this one. We see this. There's failures in place here. We know there's policies in place and or law that is not helping these schools, especially in Mississippi. So what's your take on the systemic areas of this that we know are hampering this kind of redesign or redo or help in those schools? Great question, Alan. And you and I talked briefly about that. I, in a way, what I love about the article uh, is that there's an article inside the article 
that I wish was the next article. Uh, and the next article I would title is the comedy of America's rural education policy. If you break down the definition of comedy, it's, it's a way of looking at the world in which basic values are asserted, but natural laws of getting things done are suspended, uh, where human folly and foolishness come into play. And what I really love about the article, and again, I'm serious, I'd love to have the follow-up article, are the policy and systemic conditions that made it so difficult for that Mississippi school system to succeed. Um, and I'll just give a couple, and then you guys can jump in on that, uh, that are deeply in that article. And I would have made it the lead story and it got buried. One was the, the state policy that school bond issues have to get a 60% supermajority approval, something that was passed in the 1950s after Brown versus Board of Education. Um, this district in the story got 55% to build their school of the future, and they failed. If they were in uh, 40 other states, they would have passed, uh, but they weren't. And I'm not necessarily beating up Mississippi, but it is a it is a commit comedic a tragic comedic thing that you have super majorities in rural places where you get 55, 58 percent, and you don't win, and you don't win because the people that have property and are sending their kids to the private schools can essentially veto what you want to do by that policy. Then there's the policy they have in there about what well, consolidation uh, and the comedy of that is that we know from research that most of the time consolidation of rural districts do not a save money and b do not provide more opportunity or increase uh, achievement and then the third policy is takeover which is now happening as the end part of this story and it you it's tough to find a state in which a takeover of a rural district has been successful um, on any indicator of any merit and value so just take consolidation, takeover, and supermajority school bond issues, and you have the comedy of rural education policies that help create the tragedy of American learning in some places like in that article. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, I think West Virginia, you go ask those folks about rural school takeover and consolidation, I don't know if they can find a positive story coming out of there either. So I think that's a great point. Jared, you got something on this? Yeah, I was just going to say also, I think that the points, the counter narrative that those points also present, Brad, is that uh, if when you read the article on its face, or even if you skim through it, it may seem like that community is just apathetic about education. They don't care about it. You know, surely to goodness, they really care. They would have passed a bond issue and here they've let the state take it over and, and all the consolidation. When in fact, I mean, if you, if you read it and, and, and analyze it, the community was not in favor of the consolidation. I mean, there was a lot of pushback on the consolidation. And so they were, which is indicative of pride in their local community schools. They didn't want to join with another district. So there's there's one counter narrative uh, to the uh, state takeover. They pushed back on that. I mean, they, you know, there was there were several meetings and and just the the um, the the talk across town over a couple of years there where people were very opposed to a state takeover. And I feel like, you know, if you, if they were truly apathetic, didn't care about education, they, you know, they just throw up their hands and say, okay, state, come in, y'all, y'all, y'all do this for a while, you know? And so that that's one thing that disappointed me as well in the articles. It really made that community seem like they just didn't care about education. And, 
is I've met very few parents through the years and families that genuinely just don't care about their kids' education. Now, they might not know how to facilitate access to good opportunities. They may be just ignorant of opportunities out there, not ignorant as in their mental capacity, but just they don't know what they don't know. Uh, now, that may play into it, but it definitely was a lack of caring on the part of those families of the students that were in those schools. And so, I mean, I, I've seen this just down the road with a little local rural elementary school that closed about 20 years ago, and it only had 77 students in it. It was a K-6 school, and uh, it was falling apart around the students. The, it flooded every time it rained. And But you talk about a community. I mean, there was almost gun violence over the shutting down of this school and consolidating it with another elementary school because they had been their community school there for about 50, 60 years. And so I, that, that also really irritated me that there was no sense of pride in that community to be found when I just think that there's, the whole story wasn't told. And, and Jared, I'm, I, I want to double down on your point. Uh, and play up the point again about the comedy of rural education policy, but it's laughable. Take human nature. How laughable is it is that a community, uh, a low resource community, who has had 30 to 40 years of discriminatory policies to keep them from succeeding, passed by 55% uh, to say a new school, we are going to invest in our future, which is on the taxes for our stuff is going to be significantly more impactful than on people of, of richer means. Um, how laughable is it to say, after you've done that and you won but didn't win, we are now going to take you over. I mean, that goes against every law of human nature. They showed ownership, they showed responsibility, they showed sacrifice with the last bit of hope. Um, and what happens with the policy infrastructure? No, when you win, you lose. And then when you lose, you get taken over. Um, you know, anything about people in farming communities, people who have lived in farming communities, they know that is a story of people who are are always trying, and often failing to overcome natural constraints, weather. You can do all the great seeding, all the great uh, preparation. And then if you get a thunderstorm or get wiped out, you get wiped out, but you adapt, you respond, you get with your neighbors and you replow. How are they going to replow down there after this? They bellied up to the bar, 55% of them, um, and they didn't get it, and then they're going to be taken over and lose the sense of ownership and stewardship. It is, it is prime failure. It is prime, why should I care about my local community if that's the way the system is going to play it? There's also, I, I think there's one other element here, if you don't mind me being the psychologist for a second, but I think there's another element here is that a lot of rural folks take pride in in who they are, where you know how they work, their social elements, and then to have another organization, outside organization, in many respects, come in and tell them you're messing up. Are you going to be open to listening, or are you going to feel defensive? I mean, I'm just I'm throwing that out as a just a classic psychology paradigm because chances are, if you come in and tell me I'm doing everything wrong, how how open am I going to be to change versus looking at it constructively of how can you know what are some things that we can do at the local level to build get buy-in from the community and and 
get buy-in from administration and teachers and, you know, the bigger, the more collaborative approach as opposed to the top-down approach of you messed up, so here's what's going to happen. You know, Brad and Jared and Chris, great points. And here's, here's and Brad, you, you, the thing that struck me for what you said is you got people that are battling probably, like you said, 40 to 50 years of policy uh, that, that we know is not working in their favor. And they, it, but you still see hope in some parts of that article or that case study of people saying, well, maybe it'll be different this time. We may, if we get a new superintendent with limited resources, maybe they can make a difference. And that's hope, but the system is fixed against them. So I'm bringing this up for the group. What really bothered me is you could take rural out of the title and put urban and everything could be the same in that article. And would that rile people up? Would that get people to the point? And what would be the change? So I'm looking at this from the sense of what is the change? What can we do? And what can people that are reaching out now because they're mad for 20, 30 minutes and, and what, what carries us forward? I, yeah, I, I, I agree that you, that narrative or the at least the dynamics of that story could be overlaid in many communities other than rural communities across the country. And I guess that if I can I try to pull a positive out of every situation, I think there is a positive to pull out of this, that it hopefully shines a light on not a tragedy happening in a rural education system, but just a tragedy happening in our education system, period, that it, that also plays out in other communities, other uh, urban areas in our country. And so uh, hopefully, you know, it seems like we have one of these every few years where somebody, either a book like Jonathan Kozal or, or this article in a prominent publication, highlights this and everyone's incensed for a while and oh my goodness but the people that really empower and the people the decision makers the people in control of resources people like us um, in some ways that uh, you know we get incensed but it doesn't touch us specifically so I think it's easy to get upset, preach for a little while, but really not a lot of action steps take place. So I, I love you you pinning on us a little bit, Dr. Pratt, that, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I think that, I mean, that is the question. I, and your point, you were talking before, uh, I can't remember if you talked about this on the podcast or before when we were just uh, having a conversation about when you first, the article was sent to you and people started blowing up blowing you up on text and, and on Twitter. And um, I get that all the time in advocacy things. I got it this week on an issue in our state where I was on a call and the same people, there were about 30 of us with some state leaders on a call. And and I said some things and people on this same call like, text me, way to go, good job. And I'm like, I, I don't need silent assent, you know, to, to, uh, <laughs> to help this cause. Like I, I need vocal dissent that if anything's going to happen or if we're going to really make some some change and so i think it's that you that's ultimately out of all this are we just going to get upset to a podcast about it and other people that read it get upset about the narrative as portraying rural 
schools, are we going to actually do something and motivate that that silent group out there that silently disapproves of it? But what are we vocally going to do? What are some action steps we can do? Not just on the rural side of this, but just education in general, where instances of this are taking place. So uh, I respectfully uh, disagree with you, Dr. Pratt, slightly on you could replace this with urban uh, and rural. I think this is very, very rural uh, in three ways. One um, is you're usually in urban reform, education reform. They don't have to fight for attention. They get the attention. And again, the rural, uh, the, uh, the American education policy system from Title I on is set up in their favor. Uh, for that. And I'm not knocking that. There are a lot of low income and needy and equity issues that need to be dealt with there. But I think one thing here that's very rural is um, how do you get and sustained attention? And like Jared said, is this going to be a feel bad story that makes us go, woe is us, woe is us? Or is this a litmus test that the people are trying out right now in the off year election in which once again, rural votes in 2022 and 2024 are gonna be important to see if there is a rural education policy, not just not just education, but policy agenda that can get the attention of, of uh, suburban and urban folks for political consequences and political careers. So I do think there's something there about how this might spark attention and who. Secondly, the champions for this, and this is what Jared is saying, who are gonna be the partners to move forward to this? And unfortunately, in too many rural places, in my humble opinion, often the policy political champions of rural places are not necessarily pushing for rural education policy reforms on these systemic issues that we're talking about. In fact, sometimes they can be the, uh, the greatest enemies uh, to rural education policy uh, moving forward in a fair and effective fashion, even though they're publicly elected from those rural areas. So how do we get the local champions to understand this isn't just a feel-good story, but this is a story about economic, social, and educational justice and prosperity and moving forward. And then third, where I don't think it's uh, urban, is this has got to be regional. This has got to be a regional story. Uh, so many of these small school systems can't make it alone to deal with these issues. And then the answer isn't for consolidation, but it is a smart partnership. So one definitive thing, and I'll shut up on this question, is... Uh, right now, uh, there is uh, something called the, the Good Jobs Challenge, which is um, uh, coming out of uh, EDA, uh, which is a $500 million competition through January 26, 2022. Uh, that is a regional approach to help uh, regional communities come together around their most important industry sectors, whether it be agriculture, engineering, uh, in, uh, energy, whatever it might be, um, and really develop school to work pathways that can really grow and keep talent in regions. That's a definitive thing that this article could help sponsor because the tragedy of another tragedy of the story is, uh, is that the schools have lost that deep connection to the future of their communities. And so policy opportunities like uh, uh, the, uh, the good jobs challenge are something we should take on. I'm sorry. No, I agree with you 100%. And I also agree with you calling me out on that because I should have been more specific. What, what I, I'll say this, 
it's not swap for swap, but I think I go back to Jared's point is the same issues in the school, the buildings and stuff like that. You could say rural and urban, very similar. So I do, a, I'll, I will, I will make that correction. Um, hey, can, I, I can I say this? I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Pratt, but to, um, to also, I, I want to, probably the only time I defend you, Pratt, is when Brad's on here, you know, and he and I disagree on stuff. So, <laughs> but I, I will, I, I do, and that's, that's the reason I said like the dynamics of the story, but also a, a, a huge difference that uh, I will admit, Brad, is that in an urban setting, you know, you'd probably be able to stand on the roof of that school and throw a rock and hit four or five foundations that will give money to offset the gaps from the state and federal dollars, where in most rural communities, you do not have as many wraparound support site foundations that they do in urban cities. So, so can I push back for one second? Oh, no. Oh, me or Brad? You can't oh, Brad, both me. on that one. <laughs> because here's the thing. You can look on top of the building, stand on top of the building, see foundations, do that. But they're not getting anything better results in a lot of times than, than with the rural schools that don't have the resources. So I think that's what made me mad is some of these folks that were kind of coming from the urban side saying, look at this problem. Dear God, and I want to say, look in the mirror before you start judging us and we're going to, but I want to find a solution. So I'm, I'm not trying to be sensitive to it, but yeah, I kind of am in a way. So love to hear your thoughts. Well, let's get, let's get Chris's thoughts as a, you, what do you think as far as um, comparing this to other situations around the country? Do you think this is, this is something you could route this situation could rally folks in education advocacy and policy, not just rural folks, but across all demographics, Chris? Um, it's Well, it's interesting, and, and I hate to say this, and this, you know, I may, I may not become popular with you guys after I say this, uh, but, and this is going to sound very liberal, um, you know, but I'm not taking a side here on liberal or conservative, but honestly, for me, it all comes back to social economic. Um, I, I think you, if you start there and then look at other variables like the demographics of like race and ethnicity that, you know, those kinds of things, and then move out to Brad's point, which I was going to pipe in and then Brad stole my thunder, which I appreciate Brad. I was going to say, you know, and then align the educational needs with market need. Right. So that's where Jared, some of your kinds of advocacy could become important because if you can coordinate business and industry with education i you know i think that's really where it comes down to and of course my solution y'all aren't going to be very surprised by this would be is there needs to be clear assessment of the need by location <laughs> you know i mean what what are those markets need what you know what are the educational goals of these school systems and even the students that are in those schools like where you know where do they want to land what do they want to do and then you know pivot to meet those needs, but I but I honestly really firmly believe uh, the more I do research in diversity, because I'm a diversity advocate actually. I I very you very much are pro diversity initiatives in many respects, um, but at the same time, we've got to widen the variables to really get try to get at some of these things to to offer the best benefit back to you know the citizens or, you know, citizens and, and students that are going to be the future of America. And that, and that's in some ways where the article really hits a, a, 
point with me about, yeah, we have these systematic problems, but, you know, making these, br these huge brush strokes of that rural education's in decline or that there's these massive systematic problems and things like that really takes away from the variety of narratives that are out there that are just as pertinent as that narrative have similar challenges to that narrative but then also have major differences and that's the part that concerns me the most about these kinds of over of these large brush strokes articles yeah we need to rally but we also need to rally intelligently and and i think brad that may be the point you're kind of making here yeah and go off of alan's point three definitive tactical rallying actions uh one um, I think the New York Times should listen to this podcast and they should solicit from Dr. Pratt an op-ed about the comedy of rural education policy. Here, <laughs> uh, here. I agree with, with that. that. That's, that's right. one. Second rally is that the U.S. Department of Education, who I don't think yet has identified its rural liaison, uh, and the Biden administration, who has said that a coordinated comprehensive rural policy is important. Uh, time to to uh, to step up or shut up. Um, so the second end of anything is for this to rally around uh, definitive rural policy. And in relationship to that, uh, education with commerce, with labor, with USDA. And I would say USDA, if you want to find any federal department that over the years, up and down, have had a more uh, comprehensive, less damaging to a certain extent to federal policy in rural places, it's USDA. Um, they have they are constantly trying to create the right systems for small rural family farmers to farm viably i'd like the same approach for small rural schools to teach viably and to learn viably and what are the viability issues not just the test scores that are necessary from broadband to whatever to have rich soil in which you can grow your next crop uh, whether it be students or corn. So the second thing would be the federal comprehensive approach to this. And then the third would be to send this podcast to the aid of every governor in this state and say, do you have a governor? Do you have an educate rural policy with particular rural education policy? And are you looking at the systemic issues that actually make things worse and not think, make things better? Those would be three things I would do to rally. Yeah, Brett, I agree with you on your three points. Uh, other than the fact that I don't want to write the op-ed by myself, um, that'd be number one. Um, I'll help I, you with that. I'll help you with that, Dr. Pratt. Jared, thank you so much. But I, I would take, let's, let's think about the regional approach. You mentioned that earlier. I think that's the key. And I also think if you come to our conference in the fall, you can meet with Brad, myself, and Jared, and some others, and we can talk about that regional approach as well. So, Brad, I'll tee that up for you to talk through that a little bit. Sure. Uh, and and Jared and others know much more about this because they've been involved in this at a much more ground level or grassroots level. But I can share three things, I think. Um, one, with any regional approach, it's got to involve multi-sector leadership that fundamentally are, are leaders that get that they can't do it alone. And I've been in too many places where either the superintendent or the mayor or the county commissioners think they can do it alone. Um, and go down their own interest for whatever what reason. And you got to really cultivate regional leadership that say, we can't do this alone. While we respect the identity of each individual community in the region, we've also got to figure out smarter ways to work together with real outcomes. So the, the leadership imperative is one. Secondly, uh, any regional uh, success I've ever seen, it's got to have a backbone organization. 
It's got to have somebody that's a group that's Switzerland that can convene, have the authority to convene, has the power to uh, pursue grants um, and resources to get things done. But you need a backbone organization for a regional approach. And then the third thing is you need some kind of accountability dashboard that gets not at just the outcomes like test scores, but like, again, that's what I was saying earlier, the viability of systems, the viability of policy and the resources to get things done. Um, if you don't have those structures in a regional approach, you're just not gonna get things done. Jared, I know you work with this often. I don't know if you wanna extend upon that or disagree with me. No, uh, Brad, I completely agree with you. Actually, um, it's, I think that even though the dynamics of this situation, I believe are, are similar in other communities across the state, um, every community is a little bit different. Every state's a little bit different. And so um, you're, you're exactly right. That coalition of the willing, not just a coalition, there's a, a friend of ours that uh, Pratt and I work with. He's, he always promotes, like, if you're going to put a group, well, friend of yours too, uh, Brad, Joe T. Yeah. Um, you know, when you put a coalition together, it has to be a coalition of the willing. You don't want to drag organizations by the hair of their head to this table. And it definitely needs to be somebody with street cred that you're more like a Switzerland that um, that can be a valued convener, be a critical partner, but also don't just bring the ed folks to the table. It's got to be industry leaders. It's got to be policymakers. It's got to be K-12 post-secondary. It's got to be multi-sector. And it, it really... To be frank, I think it needs to be more industry-led than it does uh, in the K-12 space because they're the ones that should demand better from that school system and their state and supports for that school system from the state. So uh, I, that's, to me, when I do regional work, that's where I start is with the industry leaders because they're the ones that can really drive any kind of programmatic stuff at the community level, but also policy changes at the state level. The only thing, Jared, I would uh, kind of play with you on is that uh, industry needs to be there. But as you know, there are many rural places. Another reason you go regional is you have more chance to get at industries because many rural communities don't have access to industry. But other, but other than that, I, I think it should be, I like the phrase work-led and not employer-led because a lot of this is entrepreneurial. A lot of this is small business, particularly in rural. A lot of this is the gig economy. A lot of this is a post COVID world where millions of people are reassessing what is work, what kind of work they wanna do, how much they get paid for that work, work-life balance. And so I would just broaden that a bit to say work-led regional initiatives in terms of what is quality, dignified, meaningful work that grows individual and regional prosperity Employers are involved, but so are entrepreneurs, and so are small businesses uh, to make that happen. So that's the only thing I'd push back on. I like no, it. So that's a great point. That's in, and you're out a lot of isolated rural communities. You know, some of them have a, you have to draw a circle of an hour, hour and a half commute for them to get to a living wage career. Yep. Um, so, yeah, great point. Well, I, 
I'm going to close this out before we get uh, to preaching too much and, and uh, my blood pressure goes up anymore. <laughs> I think I, I, what has helped that quite a bit is, is the action steps. I feel like that, Brad, you helped us frame up and uh, how we can do more than just get mad about this. And, and I, you know, I won't say that, that it, that, well, yeah, it does make me mad. Starts saying that, maybe, but I, I do give the author credit for at least going down and immersing in that community. I just wish that some of the there are definitely positive things that are happening in that community. I wish some of those could have been highlighted. And I I hate the title. I mean, the title's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so. Um, uh, thanks, Brad, for joining us today. Any closing thoughts before I wrap this up for Chris? I like Chris go first, and I got something real quick. Now, I was going to say I appreciate the the opportunity to have these kind of very frank discussions. Um, I'd also remind our listeners that the uh, the opinions of myself, um, Dr. Bigham, Dr. Pratt, and Dr. Mitchell are our own, and not by any organizations that we're affiliated with. But I would also just like the viewers to know that it is these kinds of hard conversations that are how we move forward. And sometimes we have to have them. And so we appreciate the listeners being open, have an open mind to listen to a variety of perspectives. And thank you. And the only thing I would share is I like the way you said it, Jared, is the appreciative approach. I'm a firm believer that the future of the entire planet is deals with rural learning, living and livelihood. Um, it is huge in terms of energy. It is huge in terms of food. It is huge in terms of climate. Um, and just to give you a stat that blew my mind, might not blow your mind. And I know that not all rural is agriculture, but the heart of all rural places is agriculture. Um, there out of the 8 billion people on this planet, 2 billion of them are farmers. And that 2 billion feed 80% of that 8 billion. Uh, that just blows my mind in turn, and, and almost all those 2 billion small farmers are doing it with crop rotations, smart farming, enriching the soil and getting by. I just don't want indigenous knowledge and rural ways of life that are productive and open and civic and democratic. Um, we need to value those things a great deal more. And the tragedy of uh, America's rural schools didn't look at that. And at the end of the day, 55% voted for that levy, which are like 2 billion farmers feeding 80% of the world's population. That, that is great. And I, Brad, I appreciate that. That, that. that is so true. And, and Jared, you can close this out, but I would say I, this was not for me, not a slam on the author or the New York times. It was a, it was just a things that we found missing or things that we were kind of, that kind of bugged us a little bit. So as Paul, as Paul Harvey would say, this is the rest of the story. Yeah, it makes you feel a little bit better to talk about it. So, Jared, wrap us up here and we'll close it out. Yeah, honestly, I think that um, the article could have been better served and it would have helped my blood pressure if you just changed a couple words in the title instead of the tragedy of America's rural schools, maybe a tragedy in a rural school district or in a rural district, something or rural community, um, because it's not just about the schools there. It's really about that community. So um, I just I got aggravated that I feel like it's really portraying in a blanket way, what rural America, rural education looks like right now. So 
Um, I'll do the rest of my venting on Twitter and thank our listeners for joining us. And don't don't stay a part of that silent solidarity. You know, if this has upset you, aggravated you, that um, that that a community is suffering under some of these circumstances, or that just that rural education was portrayed in this way. I mean, Brad laid out some great action steps that we definitely can get behind. So um, let's let's activate and use this as a catalyst. So thanks for joining. Look forward to uh, getting this group together again in the future. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jerry Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts. This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rural Voice podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, the content of this podcast are the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.